five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. My guest this week is Chris Carberry, the CEO and co-founder of Explore Mars. Explore Mars is a non-profit that brings aerospace business leaders together with government entities, mediating and facilitating the direct flow of information, and was incorporated in February 2010. Prior to working at Explore Mars, Chris was the executive director of the Mars Society for almost two years. Chris and I both share an avid interest in Mars, and I was a director with the Mars Society until mid-August 2001. Welcome, Chris, to the SpaceQ podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. Mars has not been the subject of one of my podcasts yet, so I thought I would provide a little background. Mars is why I'm doing this podcast. In 1976, when I was 12, the twin NASA Viking spacecraft landed safely on Mars and beamed back the first images from the surface. I was fascinated with Mars. After they landed, many people thought Mars was a dead world. The images Vikings sent back were bleak. We now know better. After 40 years of incredible robotic exploration, Mars is a vibrant planet with a diverse and fascinating topography that could have supported life in the past, and to this day, we can only speculate if any life currently exists on the red planet. In 1997, I read the book The Case for Mars by Robert Zubrin and Richard Wagner. At the time, I was working on my first technology company. Until I happened upon that book, I'd always been an armchair space supporter. But I read the book, contacted Robert Zubrin, and got actively involved in the Mars Society until August 2001. I'll note that in going to the first Mars Society conference in 1998 is what led to the creation of my company, SpaceRef. That's where I met my business partner in that company, Keith Cowling. I never imagined starting a space media venture, but that's exactly what I did, and it worked out well, and next year we'll celebrate the company's 20th anniversary. So, Chris... What influenced you to become an active in the Mars community, join the Mars Society, and eventually start Explore Mars? Well, once again, thanks for having me on. Glad I'm your first Mars speaker on this webcast. Um, like you, a uh, similar background in how what inspired me to get into um, the Mars advocacy world. I, my background actually is history and policy, and I was act actively working as a political historian, archivist, and did a lot of did a lot of political work on the side in various campaigns. But I'd always been interested in space exploration. But as I was going through college, et cetera, I didn't really see how I could contribute to space exploration. But like you, I think it was probably in '97 as well. Uh, I read a Case for Mars by Zubrin Wagner, and it literally did. It got me thinking. It kind of made a couple of those, uh, some things clicked into place. I realized that my skills on policy, political outreach, and some some of my other skills were, could directly impact the future of space exploration. And so at that point, I started getting, slowly got, got active in various groups, initially the National Space Society. But then I... Um, 
joined the Mars Society, I believe, in late 98 or early 99, you know, and became active pretty soon, pretty quickly became in charge, uh, started leading their political activities for a while, you know, and then, you know, was on and off with the Mars Society uh, for a number of additional years, had a little hiatus around the time that you left, actually, then came back and eventually became the um, executive director of that group. But, you know, I ended up leaving along with a number of other folks, uh, that group, in um, uh, 2009. And we wanted to do something different. We didn't want to create, try to recreate the Mars aside just by a different name. But we wanted to start focusing on specific projects, specific uh, efforts that we thought were important. But we also didn't want to create a membership group either because we didn't want to compete with the Mars Society or National Space Society or any of the other planet, uh, other membership groups. There were plenty of them out there. There was no need for another membership group. So we created Explore Mars. And I think, you know... Uh, uh, yeah, our first conference was in 2011, which was the ISS and Mars conference. And I think with that conference, it really showed what our skill set was, where we could really uh, play a large role. By the, and I think the biggest uh, benefit of that conference, in addition to getting the idea of utilizing ISS for, um, you know, as a precursor for Mars, uh, but it showed that we were very good at bringing different groups together. That initially, the Mars community didn't want to be have anything to do with a, uh, an, an ISS conference, but we brought people in and we literally converted a lot of people. And we realized we are very good at bringing different groups together and building the community. And so I think that's been, you know, there have been a lot of things I think we've done fairly well, but I think that's probably at the core of it. And how has the organization uh, evolved over the years? You're about eight years old now. Well, you know, uh, it, it's interesting. You know, yeah, we are eight years old. Uh, in many ways, we do a lot of the same things, but we've gotten we've expanded quite a bit. As you know, we've done a lot of conferences, you know, or at least quite a few conferences, including the Humans to Mars Summit right now, which is um, now the largest conference, I believe, in the world focused on sending humans to Mars. But we've also, you know, we also try to, in a smaller way, uh, in workshops and everything else, try to bring stakeholders together to slowly push push forward different technologies, different concepts, and policy. Our Affording Mars workshop is a great example. We've been doing that for five years now, and it's been very successful at bringing, once again, bringing uh, the different stakeholders, the different communities together to slowly try to move ahead policy and different ways of thinking about Mars architecture and, and, and policy. I think that's another reason why we were we're successful is that we don't we don't try to get overly ambitious for, for each of these events or what we're trying to accomplish. We set manageable goals and and are perfectly content if we make just a little bit of progress as long as we make progress each time. And so I think those reports have had a, actually quite a, over the last few years quite a large influence on uh, the perception of how affordable and how sustainable Mars exploration can be. Um, you know, and I think has managed to uh, bring together, you know, I think you've known, you've, you've been in the space community a while, and there are various uh, silos within the community, whereas, you know, people you would have thought would have spoken to uh, 
who have known each other for years, even if they've worked uh, like a couple floors apart in the same building, hadn't spoken to each other. So, uh, met so many times uh, we have introduced people who probably should have known each other for years and interacted, but hadn't. And gotten them to be able to brainstorm different scientists with mission architecture people with policy people and so that's I think we've evolved by doing more of that refining it be broadening the circle but also trying to reach out beyond that it can't be just the usual suspects we can't just live within the echo chamber so we also try to um, Bring in different industries, different voices. Um, you know, right now we're making a lot of progress, you know, collaborating with the virtual reality and augmented reality um, industry. We just had our first um, VR and AR workshop back in December. We've been making a lot of strides forward, coordinating with the entertainment industry as well. But we're trying to reach beyond that, find different industries that may not look like or may not be associated with space exploration, but they are and they're very but they're very supportive and want to play a role in it. And so I think the more we can highlight that space exploration has far more support than the, for lack of a better phrase, the usual suspects that, you know, that everybody thinks of the Boeings, Lockheed, SpaceX, et cetera, that it goes far beyond that. I think that just strengthens our position so we can, you know, build up more political momentum and to enable us to finally get it done. And what about uh, expanding beyond the U.S.? Are you... I mean, I know that people from other countries do come to your conference, but is this something where you see uh, going to Europe and having a conference in Europe uh, specifically to get, you know, Europeans on board with uh, your message? Funny you should mention that. First off, we have done some things in Europe. Our our second note was actually our third conference. Our second ISS and Mars conference was in Strasbourg at the um, at I, I, at ISU, by International Space University. However, we haven't done a lot since then. But this year, we will be doing a, the, our first Mars uh, Mars workshop in Italy in June, modeled on the affording Mars workshops. You know, to start bringing the European community and other countries and agencies together to see where the overlaps and interest are. We know not everybody is as uh, gung-ho committed as we are for yet again to Mars as quickly as possible, but we also want to see where the uh, natural alliances are and start focusing on that. For instance, with Europe, a lot of interest in robotics. There seems to be growing interest in sample return. That's a great place to start building up uh, additional alliances and momentum. And, you know, also, how what are the what are the natural precursors to getting to Mars? We're not so tunnel vision in our goal to get to Mars um, that you know we don't acknowledge you know the role of other destinations as well. Just finding the right balance that we can accomplish our goal, but also you know uh, you know understand that other people have other uh, goals as well. But we're also doing some programming uh, in February in the UAE and Dubai as well. And so we're trying we're working with them to um, show highlight how, um, you know, a lot of these technologies that we need to develop for getting to Mars and other destinations in the solar system not only are beneficial to that, but also can be highly beneficial to hum humanity, like focusing on things like can we grow crops on Mars, agriculture, you know, and if we're able to grow crops on Mars 
how will that benefit us on Earth? I'm, I certainly with the you know being able to get efficient or learning learning how to grow crops, such an arid environment as Mars. I'm sure there will be benefits to agriculture on Earth. Same things with things like water extraction and utilization, and other things like that. So we it, you, timely question that you asked. We've been. Uh, <clears throat> You know, starting this year, we're really beginning to focus on becoming more active internationally, and we'd like to do um, larger conferences in Europe and the UAE, but also start expanding, you know, do something, and we'd love to do, you know, workshops in Japan or Korea or China or elsewhere over time. So uh, it's interesting that you bring up the the, the, uh, growing crops on Mars. Uh, It just so happens that right now, um, Matt Bamsey of the DLR, um, who's also um, worked in the Canadian High Arctic at the Houghton Mars Research uh, Station uh, at the Arthur Clark Mars Greenhouse, um, is actually uh, in the process of setting up a greenhouse in the Antarctic. Uh, I think it's called Project Eden, and it has a dual purpose of um, testing out new techniques, uh, you know, the whole gamut uh, of scientific uh, research uh, about growing crops in extreme environments with the aim of actually uh, dual aim of doing it for extreme regions on Earth and also uh, for space and, and, and for Mars. But going back to the to central question uh, of uh, Explore Mars, uh, and that is Humans to Mars. I remember in, in 1998 at the first Mars Society conference that uh, Zubrin said humans could land Mars within 10 years. I believed him at that time. After all, here was a conference. It was the first of its kind like this. There had been something called the Mars Underground, which I was briefly got involved in at that time. And basically it was because there was a lot of people interested in going to Mars, but it wasn't something that was... Uh, at the top of uh, exploration uh, mindset at the time. But here was a conference that was specifically for that, uh, Humans to Mars, uh, and it included, you know, space agencies from around the world, scientists, engineers, enthusiasts, and everything. everyone thought it was possible. Mike Griffin was there, John Young, and so many others. We had gone to the moon in less time, and our technology it was far superior now. Why do you think it was never realistic in 1998 that humans could land on Mars by 2008? And why is it that here we are in 2018, 20 years later, that we're still, based on what I read on your website, 15 years away, 2033, before we actually do uh, land humans on Mars? Well, I think that it's a... You know, multiple layers to that yes. question. Back in 1998, there are many, many different factors. I think one of the biggest one is that we hadn't really convinced uh, policymakers that this was a goal, as you well know. I mean, I was going to meet with members of Congress, other policymakers then as well. And, you know, the environment was vastly different. Uh, you know, you go into a congressperson's office and you say, oh, we want we want to send humans to Mars. And, you know, you get the eye rolls you get, you know, that look at you as though you're wearing Vulcan ears. It was it was definitely a different environment. Nobody or at least very few people took us seriously when we went to these congressional offices and advocating human advocated humans to Mars. And so I think that was one of the large hurdles then. And I think over time, that has 
that has completely transformed. I mean, you know, yeah, we have our challenges right now. It's still a challenge to see whether we're going to be able to get to Mars in 15 years right now. But from a political perspective, sorry, I'll let me turn that off. Political perspective, it there is just no comparison right now. There seems to be right now general agreement that we want to go to Mars. You know, when you go into um, congressional offices, everybody just assumes this is going to be the destination, that we're doing it. There may be some varying opinions on how we're going to do it and where we stop first. But it, pretty strong support, and even in places you wouldn't expect. I, you know, sometimes I've made bad assumptions. You know, you look at the NASA procurement page and you go into a congressional district office and, you know, you see a, it's very rare, but occasionally you'll see a zero on the amount of NASA dollars going into that district. You know, so a farm district um, or some other places. And I can sometimes assume, well, this is probably not going to be a successful meeting. And often the case, it's couldn't be any further from the truth. You run into some of the most enthusiastic people. So I think this is there's broad-based support right now. And so I think that's one of the biggest differences. I don't think we were quite, even though Zubin was correct that, you know, there was nothing, we were better prepared, better prepared back in 1998 than we were in 1961 to go to the moon. That's perhaps correct, but I don't think we, I think there were a lot of factors, policy being one of them, that just weren't there. And I don't think, you know, what we can argue, I'm not going to get into mission architecture design. I'm not really qualified to anyway. I'm a policy guy. But I think, yeah, I think there were a lot, still a lot of hurdles that, you know, there was some political reality we had to face, some technical reality we also had to face, um, you know, over time. And to be perfectly frank, we were not, not going to recreate that Kennedy moment that Roberts and other people in the space community have been talking about for 20 years. I think, you know, I think there are other moments that can be created, but I think it's been a false hope that we're going to somehow magically recreate, you know, JFK's speech. Many presidents have tried making um you know, space speech, speech, speeches with varying levels of success. But, you know, it, it, we, we have to find a way to create the right environment that, frankly, is more sustainable. And so fast forwarding to the future, um, I, I think, yeah, I think there are plenty of tactical challenges. If you, I'm, you've spoken to uh, many of these folks as well, depending on who you talk to, who's doing mission architecture, it's, you know, uh, you know, you'll get varying answers on the level of complexity, how long it'll take, how much it will cost. But most of the plans that are currently being devised now, you know, are much more efficient, seem to be much more affordable. Certainly, no, we're not in that category that, you know, in the 1989 plan, um, I think people have found political reality. So right now, I think it still boils down to, I mean, there are a lot of other factors. I think it still boils down to getting the right political commitment to really get it done. And that may well require additional funds, but it certainly won't require a doubling of NASA's budget. I think, I think, but we, I think we right now, with all this congressional support, the administration has certainly made a number of strong space statements uh, with, you know, initially signing the Authorization Act, which frankly had the strongest Mars language I think that's ever appeared in legislation. Then, of course, more, more recently signing uh, Space Policy Directive Number One, which had certainly had some refocus on the moon, um, but still. You know, kept Mars, you know, 
as a key focus of U.S. space policy. But I think right now we still need to find a way to focus the support, which also was within the general public, to get it done. Whether, you know, whether we can actually afford, I don't think we right now are going to, it's realistic to say that we're going to get on the surface of Mars within 10 years. I know even Elon says that we could do that. And, you know, within the right environment, maybe we can. But I just don't see I just don't see that happening, at least in the current environment. But I think I think by 2033 or certainly by the mid 2030s is an achievable goal, you know, without dramatic increases in the federal budget based on based on some of the architectures that we've reviewed in our various workshops and other events that we deal with. And we deal we talk to all these mission architecture people. And so I think. I think we're in a good position to do that, but I think it would take something unusual to enable us to get to the surface of Mars safely within 10 years. Um, so I hope that answered your question without <laughs> droning on too much. No, no, that's good. I mean, and you're right. I mean, the political side of things is definitely uh, a part of the equation that, uh, you know, that has been worked on and continues to be worked on and things have definitely changed. Uh, the technical challenges are the technical challenges. They'll always be there. Um, now, well, why not just kind of a side comment on that? And that's, I mean, that's where the policy and the technical challenges are, you know, completely connected. You know, last year, our Affording Mars report last year and uh, uh, the, our, the fourth one came out earlier this year. Uh, was looking at critical technologies, long pole technologies, our capabilities, you know, basically the technologies slash capabilities that we need need to start developing now and throughout the 2020s if we have hope, a hope of landing on Mars, landing people on Mars in the 2030s. Things like, you know, and these are things that everybody's known. We've known about these for years. We just need to start focusing on them. And things like EDL, entry, descent, landing, and ECLIS, and you know, ascent. You know, you know, there, there's. A, I think we had a list of like 12 key. There are more of them, but like somewhere around 10 or 12. I can't remember the number of these tall pole or long pole technologies. And this is where you know it's very much connected with policy because. You know, it's one thing to have a policy, yeah, we're going to go to Mars in the 2030s, but we actually have to make some of these critical decisions on these these technologies that really will take some time to develop. We have, you know, we have only like particularly with EDL, we uh, while people talk about it, we see nice videos of land spaceships <laughs> softly landing, gently landing on the surface of Mars, but they usually uh, uh, leave out kind of the key part of them getting through the atmosphere successfully and slowing down. Uh, and that, that these are things that really need to be addressed. And uh, we need to start spending more money and resources to look at them, you know, if we want, if we have any hope of getting to Mars in the 2030s. So, all right. These are lots of practical issues. Now, I would re be remiss if I didn't ask this question because there's a portion of the audience and certainly of the public out there who, who, who are going to want to know the answer to this question, which is, uh, you know, one of the things your website says is that uh, we should make humans a multi-planet species and that Mars is feasible, affordable, and necessary. Can you elaborate on why Mars? Big <laughs> Big question. Yes. <laughs> and just uh, if you want to go to the website, we even have a report we came out with earlier this year, or oh, actually last year, called the Why Mars Report. But 
you know, I think, and this is, I think, one of the reasons why this is a challenging question is different than some people. I think the space community tends to sound confused on the question. I think it's not because there isn't aren't good reasons for this, a good answer. I think there are too many, and this is where we get bogged down. When we went to, and I will answer your question in a second, but you know, when we went to the moon. It was pretty easy. You know, there were a lot of, I know, I'm sure a lot of the engineers and scientists had many reasons of their own, but the only real reason why we went to the moon was to beat the Soviet Union. That's easy. It's a good messaging. It's easy to understand. When we go say, why are we going to Mars? You know, it. you come up with like a hundred different answers. From my perspective, you know, and I think, I think the answer is like, scientific value, you know, there's water there, we could discover life, of, you know, indigenous life there is also a place where humans can actually, we know, or we're fairly certain, we don't know because we haven't been there, but we're fairly certain humans can live off the land there because of the level of water there, uh, probably there, you know, having an atmosphere. I, it, all of those things, are, you know, are... Uh, Add to that to the why, but from my perspective, I think it's also one of the best destinations to really inspire the public to 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 really drive national morale. And there are a lot of things that can drive national morale here in the United States, um, as well as international morale. But I think you know if we can really show that we're doing something like this, the public is in, on board. I think the public are beginning to believe. Uh, that we're actually going to do this. And I think that can really drive the uh, United States as well as the international partnerships, you know, uh, kind of uh, the outlook for the future. This is actually one of the reasons I got into space exploration, because I thought this is really, it's not necessarily like a nationalism sort of thing, but it's more of something to... Um, create a really positive outlook for the future, but also do it in a way that's not actually that expensive. When you look at, um, you know, for for large government-funded programs that can have a dramatic impact on national outlook, on innovation, on other things like that, space exploration really is quite a bargain compared to everything else. And within the United States, also, it has bipartisan support. And we hear here, it's there aren't too many things that have that. So I think it's a complicated answer, but I think it's really it's scientifically more compelling than any destination we can go. I think, you know, yes, the moon is closer, but Mars is far more compelling for sending sustainable human, human you know, um, presence, whether it's actually colonies, just settlements or whatever else. It's also the closest place we can send humans that we're likely to find signs of, 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 of life outside, you know off Earth, you know, yeah, and see to life on Mars and so or, or elsewhere, you know, elsewhere on the solar system. So if we find microbiological life on Mars, should humans step foot on Mars? I mean, that's a question that people ask. I personally, I know it's going to be a big issue. It already is. And this is actually it's a good sign that planetary protection has become a, uh, a big issue because I think right now it's because people believe we're going to do it. I think it was a background discussion before, but it was so, you know, planetary protection before I think was serious, but still wasn't 
as forefront because it really people didn't really think it was going to happen anytime soon. So why get bogged down in that discussion? Right now, it's coming more to the forefront, and we will have to deal with it. And I think we should absolutely should send humans there with, you know, we have to investigate you know, the, the dangers to the microbial life on Mars, if it exists, as well as backward contamination to, you know, what could happen to the crew or what if we brought it back to Earth? Could it be, you know, not like some Hollywood horror movie, but, you know, could it be something like an invasive species on Earth or something like that? Who knows? We absolutely need to take precautions, but we should send it. I think the best way to understand if there is life on Mars, the best way of understanding it will be having you know, astronauts there, human scientists on the surface of Mars. And frankly, I don't think we're going to actually confirm. We may confirm it before then, but I don't think we're likely to absolutely confirm it um, until we actually have human explorers on the surface. It just, I don't want to sound like, you know, <laughs> our, our friend Robert, you know, <laughs> but he is correct that, you know, I think just humans are going to do it so much better, more efficiently, more quickly. I mean, just the fact that, I mean, I'm a big supporter of robotics, and we need to continue the robotic exploration, but one guy with a shovel on Mars, you know, is going to be able to get further below the surface than anything we've sent. Yes, and Insight's going later this year, which will be drilling down, but um, it's, a, it's a major engineering challenge to you know, get down below the surface on Mars. But one guy with a shovel can get for, you know, just one scoop <laughs> can get further down than anybody, any robot that's gone there before. Or one woman. I'll just point that out. Or one woman. That's, that's true. <laughs> it's most likely, you're right, most likely going to be at least 50 percent female crew members when we go to Mars, probably an international crew as well. So I didn't want to kind of want to step back. I also don't want to kind of make it sound too, uh, too uh, American nationalistic here either. We fully, you know, one of the big things we've been advocating is that we, the, the need for this to be an international mission and kind of, kind of work off that international space station partnership and broaden it, you know, that partnership to go beyond low Earth orbit. I think that's the best way to do it. And I, I think it can, ha, can have a powerful international diplomatic uh, impact as well. All right. So I've got a few more questions, uh, sort of changing the topic a little bit. Um, Congressman Jim Bridenstine has been nominated to be NASA's next administrator. Uh, in fact, I think uh, today, it's either today or tomorrow, uh, there will be a, another hearing uh, with him and, and uh, I think eight other nominees to ask them questions. This is basically a repeat of what happened last fall because the nomination lapsed and now it's been uh, the White House uh, Renominated him uh, into yes. the new year. So, uh, do you think if he's approved by Congress that he'll be a supporter or hindrance to your efforts to get humans to Mars? You know, I, you know, we've spoken to him a number of times, his staff, and he's a very enthusiastic guy. We don't get into well, this kind of state up front. We don't, you know, as Explore Mars won't doesn't state one way or another whether we support or not somebody overall because we try to stay out of the politics of it uh, directly because we're a nonprofit. But, you know, generally speaking, I, I, I think 
He will. I mean, he seems to be very passionate about space, human space exploration in general. You know, he's made, you know, when speaking to him and some statements, he's made some strong statements on Mars. He's obviously advocated for going to the moon as well. Um, but I think one of the keys, you know, whoever is there, you know, it, like with Bridenstine, obviously he comes from a po policy background uh, in Congress. I think he has a lot of passion, but I think it will also be interesting to see who the deputy is. I think really having the right combination there can make the bi a big difference. So I think he can be a strong supporter. I think he probably could be very effective. Uh, I, I think, but we just... That, but once again, we need it will be interesting to see who the deputy is. But I think another key is what level of support from the administration uh, is the administrator uh, given? I think will the admin will the next administrator really be empowered to move things forward? Obviously, they can't do it alone. They need the support and the funding from Congress and the administration. But I think um, I, I think having strong you know, uh, support from the administration to move forward will make a big difference, you know, and like, you know, whoever, whoever it's Bridenstine or somebody else, you know, give them a lot more confidence to make the necessary adjustments to move things forward, push all the mission architect, uh, mission directorates, as well as the industry and commercial partners and everybody and international partners to, to move everything forward. So I think, you know, regardless who's administrator, I think there are other factors that need to fall into place. But I think I think I think everybody agrees. It's we've been gone a long time without a NASA a, a permanent NASA administrator, and this does need to be resolved sometime soon because the longer this longer it takes to um, get a permanent administrator in place, the more things tend to drift, and people get I think I think people might lose faith in the overall direction if. Uh, we, if these positions are not filled soon, have you uh, have you heard of any credible names for deputy? <laughs> well, I heard I think heard one that everybody did that who couldn't do it. <laughs> you know, you know, it was you know one name that uh, had to turn it down. But I, I I'm not going to actually speculate. I have heard some names, and some pretty good ones as well. But I'm not actually going to. Um, on the podcast, uh, speculate about what names they are. <laughs> I have to try. All right. Uh, and I've heard some names as well. So um, how, what does the emergence of the moon as the much-hyped next destination for humans in the beyond low-Earth orbit exploration plan mean for Mars? It all depends on what that means. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it really, it really has... A lot of variations to this, you know. Uh, we've, all, as an organization, with all, all the activity, activities we've been doing, we've always assumed that the moon would play a role. You know, cis lunar space, you know, has been part of most of the plans out there, with the exception, perhaps, of the SpaceX plan. And that when we've certainly accepted that, you know, precursor missions are needed. But the big question is. Um, what do they mean? You know, are we going to the surface? You know, if we are, 
How is that going to happen? Uh, is this going to be the major focus of NASA activities, or is it going to we going to try to find ways to stimulate the commercial sector and the international partners? There are a number of uh, players who have expressed interest in doing mar lunar uh, lunar surface missions, such as you know a number of commercial players and, and international players. Is is there a way that we can stimulate that through these partnerships um, to to actually get to the surface without derailing efforts to get to Mars in the 2030s. And that that's a big question. That's a challenging question because by most estimates from the mission architecture people we've been dealing with, talking to, you know, once we at least if surface if the surface of the moon becomes uh, the uh, initial primary goal of NASA, it'll be very difficult to afford uh, or to afford to get to Mars anytime soon in the 20, certainly not in the 2030s. And so this, this is our dilemma. We're not opposed to the moon, but we want to find a way. Is there a way of through these partnerships, through kind of innovative thinking to be able to, uh, get to the surface of the moon and get to Mars, you know, maybe stimulating, as I uh, mentioned the other day on that other podcast, you know, we're not like utilizing the deep space gateway, you know, like everybody, we have questions about that facility, uh, but we want it, you know, we see can have value as long as it keeps focused, you know, that it doesn't become the destination unto itself, that it doesn't become a another ISS orbiting the moon. And so that I think if that facility can remain focused, uh, whereas it can be, you know, really utilized to get to Mars, but also utilized to, you know, to stimulate these partnerships for additional uh, lunar activity, I, I, I think that could be an interesting, um, an interesting balance. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, through the whole marketing by NASA of the journey to Mars, uh, Moon was always in the graphics. It was always part of the um, the plan. It was just a matter of exactly what would happen with the Moon. So, well, yeah, and this is the thing. It's not as though, and this is where we get kind of get uh, the space community tends to tear itself apart uh, over these issues, whereas. <laughs> You know, it's entirely artificial, these arguments. I mean, it's all based on, you know, we all know there's a limited budget. You know, clearly, we all want to do it all. If we could if we could just do it all, there would be no arguments. Because I think everybody in the space community, no matter where you stand, would like to go to Mars or the surface of the moon and everywhere else. But, you know, we're forced to take these positions. And, I mean, there's real reason for that. But because, you know, we know that there's limited budget. But as, you know, all these new capabilities come along, you know, maybe we don't have to, maybe we can eliminate some of these arguments because, you know, there are a lot of capabilities coming online. There's a lot more countries engaging in uh, space programs. You know, it's amazing the number of countries that have, have space programs, have space ambitions. And of course, a lot of money being spent in commercial activities right now. So surely we can find a way to, um, to achieve both goals and other goals. So how do you think commercial companies fit into the humans to Mars equation, um, particularly SpaceX? And, and I bring this up because in 1998, uh, you know, when we went to the Mars Society conference or when the first Mars Society conference was held, you know, commercial 
companies really weren't in the picture at that point, but now they are. So how do you see them fitting in the into the equation now? I think they're going to play a large role. It's just I'm not sure we know what the role is yet entirely for Mars. Kind of step back, you know, you know, Mars, you know, while we can see there's possibly potentially profit, you know, for doing kind of things, activities in low Earth orbit, maybe with the moon as well. You know, going to the going to Mars, at least the entire mission, you know, we're not going to make that profitable anytime soon through a commercial model. I think there are other things driving that. And I don't think Elon Musk believe he's going to make a profit, you know, at least if he's doing it entirely commercially, going to Mars is passion driving that. And that's great. And so in the end, though, I don't see and this is what I mentioned the other day. I'm not, I, I, I'm. You know, I think what SpaceX has done and the other companies like Blue Origin, Virgin and others has been a remarkable and they've had amazing progress over the last few years. I think that's going to continue. And I think they've motivated other companies, the uh, you know more traditional companies also to start thinking about different ways of doing things. So I think it started an interesting, you know, over the last few years, an interesting energy trend, you know, to get people really moving forward. But I don't also see, as I've mentioned a number of times, you know, that, you know, uh, you know, Congress, if if it's going to be done largely through government funds, you know, through, um, you know, through NASA, through international partners, et cetera, I don't see that money all being thrown to a single entity. And this is where I see dilemma. You know, I'm all for if SpaceX can find a way to get to Mars through independent funding. Great. You know, I, I think that's terrific. You know, we're, we're advocates for getting to Mars, you know, any way we can. We want to make sure it gets done. But more realistically, if this is going to be largely funded through uh, government entities, I think it's most likely going to be a hybrid. And so I hope we can find a way to integrate SpaceX and Blue Origin and everybody else into this process as we start developing these architecture concepts. Where would they best fit? What what are the strengths of SpaceX, you know, um, within the architectures being designed. And there are certainly areas where SpaceX has the advantage. And, you know, even though, even well, let's assume that, you know, SLS and Orion is moving forward, well, that's fine. But it doesn't mean that those are the only vehicles that will be needed either. And so um, I think there's a lot of room for finding places to create this ha hybrid um, approach, whereas SpaceX can, you know, and others will be able to you'll play a key role, but they won't be the only company responsible for going to Mars. So one last question on, on SpaceX. Uh, you know, Elon's very been very public uh, about his timelines uh, and, um, and not just with SpaceX. He sometimes set timelines that aren't, well, realistic. Um, <laughs> do you think that SpaceX could uh, actually get sending humans to Mars missions before 2030? Do you think that's actually realistic? I, you know, well, from the first part, you know, with the funding, I don't see that happening. You know, even Elon has said his timelines are aspirational. And I, I, you know, there are so many different challenges, and particularly with the vehicles. I mean, I think once again, I don't want to be dismissive. I think they've they're making great progress forward. I think they're going to play a role, a big role, probably. 
But, you know, there's still a lot of big questions um, that need to be answered that have at least they haven't divulged what they're working on. You know, they've done a, given a little bit of information on the under descent landing. Haven't I haven't seen much. Maybe there's stuff out there on you know, life support systems, et cetera. I, I just with the current funding um, scheme and some of the technical difficulties and based on, frankly, you know, the timelines of the past. Yeah, I don't see it happening in the next 10 years, you know, and that's, you know, that, frankly, the next 10 years is not long before 2030. So I, I, I so I don't see it. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't see that it's realistic. But once again, I think, you know, partnering with others over over time, I think, you know, even independently over time, you know, I think they have they probably could have a chance of doing it on their own, but they just have to find the right the right economics to do that. But I think most like once again, as I said earlier, I think the most likely way we're going to first I think the first humans on Mars will likely be um, a combination of um, the players that we know about, uh, including SpaceX. It may not be as efficient or as commercial as a lot of people want to advocate. And I'm a big I'm a big advocate for commercial space. But I think I'm also realistic on because sometimes and this is where, um, you know, I think people sometimes we don't don't understand even if all the efficient and quick plans that you see whether it be Zubrin's or Elon's or anybody else uh, even if it's very realistic technically not, not, it's not always the case that the most inexpensive efficient plan is the most politically realistic either and so i think the trick here is finding a balance between efficiency and political, uh, what's politically realistic, and we can move, you know, move that efficiency forward. Uh, maybe not as far as we might be possibly be able to go, but also do it within political reality. I think that's the balance we really need to um, try to strike. You know, it's sad to say, but you know, there's a reason why. You know, there's a reason why NASA's. Port base is based is structured as it is. You know we don't want to have to line everybody's pocket to get there, but you do have you know to maintain political support for better or for worse. You do actually have to make some adjustments and spread you know spread um, the money around a bit to make sure you maintain stronger political support. It's just a just a real just reality within our system. All right, so. Um Got a good policy question here for you. Uh, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people assume that when humans do go to Mars, it'll be an international mission. Uh, there is a group called the International Space Exploration Coordination Group, which includes 15 space agencies from around the world. Uh, China is one of those uh, space agencies. Um, right now, uh, as we've seen, um, even though tensions are high with uh, Russia, um, the uh, collaboration with the international partners, including Russia on the space station, uh, goes ahead and, and there's no uh, doesn't seem to much to be much issue there. So as we look forward, and we see that there are some elements within Congress at this time, it could change over time, uh, are very much opposed to working with China. Um, do you see 
that changing to the point where when we do have that first international human missions to Mars, that China, U.S., and others will be working together on that mission. I, I actually hope so. And you made a good example, and this is another reason why, in that why Mars area, it can apply to other destinations as well. But, uh, and I alluded to this earlier, that diplomatic uh, element, I think, is very important because, really, it, it ha- tends to transcend a lot of the other politics. As you mentioned, you know, even though there have been rough patches, many of them, over the last few years with the relationship with Russia, that partnership on ISS has moved forward and they've worked well together. The space agencies, despite the sometimes crazy politics kind of <laughs> uh, surrounding them uh, in both, you know, all over the, you know, in both in all the different countries, you know, that partnership has worked very well. I think it would be, and I think it, it can play a much bigger role than just space. I think I think it's a really important connection because even if we get have the... Uh, complicated relations over time, I think that that connection in space, can, the partnership has, has a te- can hold us together more and it can help prevent help prevent escalations over time in different areas of policy. And I think uh, I think you know trying to move forward with Russia and this is a good thing, but I think hopefully our relationship with China can evolve whereas they can become, play a role in this as well. I think, once again, building a partnership with China could have some interesting uh, overall political and diplomatic advantages. You know, yeah, we'll have to take into account a lot of different factors, but hopefully over time we'll be able to find ourselves in a place that China can play a role and we can move forward together in this. And I think I think that could have, I think that would be a really great goal I think it has some really uh, interesting, you know, political and economic uh, benefits. So yes, long once again, long-winded answer. I think I, I would at least like that to happen. I don't know if it will happen, but I think it. I think it would be in, in our advantage to find a way to engage China in space activities. Um, so there's a lot of perception out there about humans to Mars. Um, I want to throw a little curveball at you. Is there a wild card? Is there a wild card out there, someone other than China and the U.S. that could have an impact on the road to getting humans to Mars? You mean beating us there? No, not no, not necessarily beating us there, but some entity that we're not currently aware of, or that we don't take seriously, um, that could provide technology or something um, to you know, like. I said, on that road to getting humans to Mars? Well, I, you know, that's the interesting thing. As I mentioned earlier, there are so many new players, you know, whether, you know, I find it hard to believe that other countries, other than the ones you mentioned, maybe India, would have the ability, I mean, just the resources to get there. But, you know, who knows? Because, you know, even with the... Um, as we mentioned earlier, all these uh, commercial, new commercial entities starting up and, you know, achieving pretty amazing things, things that only countries have done before. You never know what's going to happen. But I think a lot of the countries more likely are going to play, are going to provide technology, passion, innovation, you know, and partnerships you know, moving forward. You know, as I met, you know, with all these company countries, you know, for instance, like the United Arab Emirates, of course, has made, uh, have made strong statements 
about Mars exploration or sending their first robotic probe in a couple years. Uh, but they've also expressed, you know, it's aspirational also, but may may not be. You know, they've announced their intent to have a city on Mars by 2117. Is that realistic? Maybe it is. I, I hope it is. And so I think as more passion, more resources uh, start getting invested with other comp- countries, I, I, I think they will play a role, and probably roles that we're not aware of right now. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, I don't know that another country by themselves, other than China, Russia, or India, are going to get to Mars before us. But, yeah, they may. Yeah. But I think, I think more I was... likely they will play. I think, I think more likely they will play. I think there are players out there that are going to play a much bigger role than we can anticipate right now. Yeah, I think I was more thinking along the lines of, of you know, some country or, 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 or company coming along and solving a technology uh, problem associated with the mission that, you know, nobody thought that uh, they would solve. So, um, last question. Uh, you host uh, an annual conference. I know you do the workshops and everything, but you host an annual conference called the Humans to Mars Summit. Uh, when is it this year? Uh, and what news can you share about the program to get people excited and wanting to go? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yes, uh, this year, um, it's on May 8th through 10th at George Washington University, as it has been for the last month since its founding in 2013. And we expect this one, uh, and it's not just hype on my part, expect this one to be the biggest one yet. We're hoping to get north of a 1,000 attendees and many tens of thousands of people watching online. And I... This one, we seem to be building a lot of energy for this one, a lot of new partners coming on board. We're trying to hire, in addition to, you know, some, you know, the strong high-level space speakers, we're, as I kind of mentioned before, we're trying to reach out beyond the usual circle. So we're going to have, we're building a lot of strong relationships with people doing VR and AR and AI. And so we're going to, even the third day of H2M, we're going to be focusing exclusively on innovative technology. So it'll be focusing on those sorts of how we're going to utilize AR and VR, artificial intelligence, you know, the, the impact of social media and other things, but other technologies. So building those partnerships, we're probably I'm not going to go into too many details on the arc. Our growing relationship with the entertainment industry, but probably have at least three film screenings throughout that week from different players, different um, projects going on right now. You know, we we're going to be accelerating our STEM education activities as well, partnering with groups like the Challenger Center and others, and the Mars Generation and, and many other players to really elevate what we're doing there. And, you know, I can't go into too many details on some of the new speakers coming in, but it looks like we're going to have quite a few new speakers we haven't had before, which I'm hoping will, you know, bring in new audiences. Once again, we like having, we want the the, the key players in the space community, the space industry being there, but we also want to make sure that the audience is also diverse. So we have lots of students there. We have lots of people representing other industries who might want to get involved in this uh, in space or just have an interest in it, and particularly grow our online uh, activity. We've always done, we've always had a huge online viewership, um, but we're wanting to expand that dramatically this year. 
you know, so that we're between the recorded you know, the live webcast and re the recorded videos and segments, we want to get well over a million views, uh, you know, for H2M this year. And I think we'll be able to achieve all of these goals. Well, that sounds great. Um, you know, uh, most of the world hasn't seen uh, a human uh, land on another planetary surface. Uh, I'm looking forward to the day in the near future when humans will land again on the moon. I'm really looking forward to the day when humans will land on Mars and begin human exploration of Mars. Uh, I just hope it's in my lifetime. <laughs> I, I want to thank <laughs> you and I both. <laughs> I, I want to thank Chris for being my guest on the Space Cube podcast. Uh, I hope we'll get you on the show again in the future to continue the discussion of humans to Mars. No, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spacecube.ca or you can post them on our website at spacecube.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. You can also find Space Q on Twitter at Canada in Space, and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook at The Space Q. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. I'm also on LinkedIn at Mark K. Boucher, and if we're connected, you'll get Space Q articles and the podcast notification in your newsfeed. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider rating the show and writing a review if you're so inclined. Inclined.